Welcome to Jodowowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, mime, painter, and so much more, Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and on this premiere episode, we're going to be looking at the early film work of Jodorowsky, including his first feature, Fondo and Liz. Joining me on this surreal trip are two amazing co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord Podcasts, the Fondo to my list. It's Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I like that you've designated me as Fondo. I feel much more like a list, but you know, whatever really? you want to do. Yeah. I would love for you to elaborate on that, but I feel like it's a little too early in the episode to do so. Liam, how are you excited about covering, really, the broad <laughs> strokes of work of Alejandro Jodorowsky? Yeah, I am... Um... I am a bit of a poser fan in that oh. I came to his stuff later, and um, once I had not only consumed uh, Holy Mountain, Santa Sangre, and El Topo, but also the documentary um, about his uh, not quite successful making of Dune, uh, mm-hmm. I got really interested, but the access to some of the later work wasn't there for me, and I didn't make the effort, uh, and so when this sort of idea of this podcast came up, that was one of my thoughts was, oh, wow, I, I'm going to have a reason to watch all these things that are like I have, but I just haven't like made the effort to watch. And I'm just really excited about that. I'm excited to spend some time thinking about his work. When it comes to his work, I feel like we've reached at this point the high point of interest meets access. Uh, so right. there's a lot of different ways to see these movies and his other work, and we'll be talking about those as we go along. But a project of this magnitude cannot be done alone or just with the two of us, Liam. Completing our axis of awesome is a writer, filmmaker, podcaster. That's that's just the start. It's the great Julia Marchesi. How are you doing today, Julia? Oh, I am peachy keen. I cannot wait to talk about some Jodorowsky. I'm so pumped. Just to, to pull back the curtain a little bit, this was really uh, an idea that formed when we were recording an episode of uh, one of our other podcasts. Julia was a guest on it talking about Dick Miller. Uh, and in that conversation, we were talking about some of the themed podcasts we do, and there was a lot of kind of mutual interest. I think, Liam, you brought up Jodorowsky first. Julia hopped right onto that and was like, that's a great topic. And it's kind of slowly came together from that point. Julia, how how concerned are you about the vast scope of Jodorowsky's work that we're going to have to cover on this podcast? Oh, my goodness. That's the thing. When we seriously started doing this, I go, oh, but... Am I am I qualified? Can I talk about him? And then it's silly though because I, you know, as a film nerd, I wanted to do all of his works justice. But then I realized I just have to tell you how I feel about these films. That's all any anybody can ever do. So I can tell you how Julia Marchesi says Jodorowsky, and then you could take it from there. Uh, that is one of the things that we want to make sh- sure that we're extremely clear about. Like this is this is an inviting podcast. We want you to give us feedback, listeners. We want us as hosts, but also as people who just love this material, to be able to kind of you know, throw out our opinions on some very surreal materials, some very surreal films, some uh, very surreal comic books that we may be talking about in the future, and kind of our gut reactions, and also maybe some of the critical reactions that we've read about. So there's so much material out here. But before we get into some of that material proper, I want to talk about why 
we are excited about this. Now, I have to be totally upfront. My experience with Alejandro Jodorowsky is fairly limited. I certainly have seen El Topo. I've seen The Holy Mountain. I've seen Jodorowsky's Dune. I've seen Santa Sangre. But a lot of his other work, boy, this is me coming at it for the first time. I've always had a lot of interest. As I mentioned before, a lot of access was kind of limited when I was first getting into interesting and unique movies back in the 1990s. So this for me, I'm just excited about getting to see a lot of this, but also, you know, I'm curious about my own response to it. I'm not coming at this like this is a uh, unimpeachable artist who we can't be critical about. I'm just as curious about my response as anyone else. Starting with you, Liam, why do you think the world deserves a Jodorowsky podcast? Well, I think that um, it's a subject that I've seen people touch on, you know, his film specifically. Um, sort of more individually than as uh, a whole. And the folks who I've seen cover it, who are great folks, tend to be people who are already, maybe not experts, but like super knowledgeable folks who are better at giving a deep dive. Um, What I liked about the idea of us covering it is I don't think any of us are pretending to be a scholar uh, per se, that we're we're all three people who are very interested uh, in the work of this director, but don't necessarily feel like we have some secret knowledge. And I think that that is much more the experience of people when they first hear about uh, Jodorowsky. I know a lot of people when the documentary came out were suddenly interested and they wanted to jump in. And the question comes, well, how do I do that? And the answer is, well, I, that's a good, you know, there's a lot of, uh, things to think about when you are starting down a path of, of watching his films. And, um, for me, I was in this interesting place where I felt like I knew slightly more than maybe someone who's, uh, new to, uh, him as a director, but not as much as I wanted to. And that's an interest. That's always kind of an interesting place for me. It's not well tread ground. I don't feel like it's totally familiar, but I do have like a bit of a foothold and some of that comes from um we you know uh for those of you who don't know i have another podcast called uh cinepunks and uh me and my co-host josh alvarez got to interview the director of uh uh dune frank pavich uh mostly because we knew him <laughs> sorry both. sorry liam are, are, are you now switching to yodorowsky as opposed to jodorowsky i go so i go back and forth because <laughs> i'm this is actually my biggest frustration well we've t- we, just so you guys know this is something we talked about off camera off camera, off mic. How do you pronounce his name? I often say Jodorowsky. I sometimes say Jodorowsky because I've also heard that from Pavich. And yet in the film, it's clear that the people close to him said Hodorowsky because mm-hmm. they called him Hodo. And that was like their short for him was calling him Hodo. And of course that makes sense because though he <laughs> is... Uh, 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 though he is Jewish Ukrainian, he grew up in Chile. So, of course, people are pronouncing the J in a Spanish way, which would be more of an H sound. But for some reason, other people I know say it with more of a Y sound. So, I am utterly confused, not just on an intellectual level, just in practice. I say his name three different ways and it drives me crazy. And so, I just, (laughs) I'm not going to edit myself. I'm just going to, whatever comes out of my mouth is what comes out of my mouth. And I'm unwilling to apologize. Point is, after interviewing <laughs> Frank Pavich, we he encouraged us to check out more of uh, uh, his of uh, Jodorowsky's writing for comic books, and so me and my co-host both bought up some graphic novels, and that got me even more excited about him as a creator because of the ways I saw resonances of his other work in his comic book work. Now, 
he actually did a lot of stuff. So I've only really read the Incall and parts of the Meta Barons, but um, even the little bit I've had a chance to read has been really interesting. So uh, yeah, that was you know I, I feel like it's 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 not something that a million people have already covered. So we were hoping to cover a lot of that comics work in a future episode, so we'll return to that at some point. But it certainly is an area where I do not have a lot of knowledge, so I'm very curious about that. Over to you, Julia. Uh, I should mention, by the way, we had that discussion about how we were going to pronounce his name before we started recording, as you referred to, Liam. I, I think as long as, we, as long as we all recognize that it can be pronounced in a variety of ways, I don't think we're going to run into a lot of confusion on that regard. Julia, what is your kind of background with Jodorowsky's film? Are you like Liam, where it was kind of like the big, the big films, the big midnight movie type movies, um, and and things like Jodorowsky's Dune maybe brought your interest back to its peak, or or did you have more of a kind of general interest uh, when you were getting into a film fandom? Well, I actually went to uh, I went to film school, and I, I did, we didn't learn anything about him in film school, so I didn't realize who he was, didn't learn about him until I worked at the New Beverly Cinema. And they showed a trailer for El Topo, Topo, I'd never heard of it. And I remember the first line of the trailer was, be prepared to live the most wonderful experience of your life. And I was like, <laughs> well, holy fuck, what is this? And I watched the trailer, I was like, okay. And then I watched it, my mind was totally blown. And it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. And it, it, it made me realize that like, he is what I want. When you say the words art film, like this mm -hmm. is what I want. This is, it's everything I want in it. Some things I don't want, let's be fair, but everything <laughs> I do want, you know? And so it's something that I really delved into it and I started watching all those films. His newest films, uh, Endless Poetry, Dance of Reality are beautiful films. They're so wonderful. His sons are so talented. Like that whole family is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I get so excited when I talk about him. Um, I actually got to uh, meet him. <laughs> <laughs> I got to meet him once. Um I got to his, one of his tarot book signed and I, I got to shake his hand and I told him he was my hero. And he said, and you're mine. Oh, Aww. I died. <laughs> I died. I was going to say that one of the interesting things kind of post Jodorowsky's Dune, uh, for those who don't know, the documentary about his uh, ab aborted and uh, unfulfilled uh, attempt to adapt Dune in the late 70s, is that it kind of marked a new point of creativity or mainstream creativity for Jodorowsky uh, so that he's been able to make a number of films since then. I mean, there was a long period where he was not making films. And then at the end of that movie, it's one of the things that they note is that he was working on another movie. And he's been extremely kind of publicly creative since then, which is something that I'm really looking forward to touching on as well. I'm glad that you brought up the El Topo trailer, Julia, because okay. that might be one of the most bombastic trailers right in the history of it, cinema it, like, Unbelievable. it really builds that shit up and then I, and then you see it and you're like wow it lives up to it yeah. i love that it has it's it's like we've all seen uh trailers which have quotes from critics and then you kind of you squint and you're like i've never heard of that look like what website or what what publication is that from this one has like quotes from the new york times saying things like this is the most incredible movie you'll ever see in your entire life like nobody was holding back regarding their response to el topo yeah, it's just incredible. I'm so excited. Thank you guys for like having me on and getting this enthusiasm going because for me, it's just an ex a chance to dive even deeper into his work. Although I have been a fan of his for over, you know 20 plus years and have always been very vocal about that. It's also, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I haven't read his comics, you know, and I um, so it's something that I get to delve into that and I haven't read all of his books, although I have read some. So it's something like I get to be a scholar a little bit and learn more about mm -hmm. something that I'm already so excited about. Uh, but it also is a little bit nervous-making, a little bit. It's a little <laughs> overwhelming. 
Well, let's let's dive into that a little bit before we get into some of the work here. What makes you nervous about about covering this? Because I feel like the weariness that you are feeling right now is a shared by both Liam and myself, and and also probably shared by our listeners who might be, you know, unprepared or feel like they're unprepared for uh, interpreting some of the material that we're going to be talking about. It's the interpretation that makes me nervous and and do I have that right? And is it the way I see it? But it's also his films are, I can't recommend them to a lot of people because you have to be okay with the entire spectrum of humanity being on screen, Mm -hmm. which means the beautiful bits, but also means the really terrible bits. And I also want to say up front, uh, first episode here, I am not okay with him killing animals. I don't think that's okay. Mm -hmm. I really wish those scenes were not in his films, but they are. And so I kind of mentally erase them a little bit and keep going. Um, So uh, not okay with that. Don't think it's all right. I'm glad that you brought that up because it's something that I certainly was going to address. We're going to talk about it when we talk about the films proper. But the fact is that that is an element, not just in what we're talking about today, but some of the other films we'll be talking about in future episodes as well. Liam, in terms of the things that you have not experienced in Jodorowsky's career, whether mm-hmm. it be comics or books or films, is there something that you're most looking forward to? Or is there something more broad that you're looking forward to as we kind of do a deep dive into his work? Oh, I haven't gotten to see uh, much of his work, or really, I think, any of his work after Santa Sangre. And so mm-hmm. um, I have a copy of The Dance of Reality that I wanted to watch, and I haven't watched it yet. I have a copy of the the latest one. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. So I Your think... are such a treat. They're both so delightful. Yeah, so I think that's like a big source of excitement for me. And even like our episode today... Um, I have the DVD box set with with uh, Fondo Elise on it, and uh, I haven't busted it out. You know, I've watched probably since I got that box set. I've probably watched uh, the Holy Mountain quite a few times, and then when I could get the Holy Mountain on Blu-ray, I got that. I've watched it a few times. I've watched El Topo a few times. Uh, I've certainly watched. Uh, I don't have a physical copy of Santa Sangre, but it makes the rounds on various streaming platforms, so I sure. tend to watch it mm-hmm. uh, regularly. But uh, but there's just so many of his movies that either I've only seen once, right, or I've just never seen. You know, like Tusk, I've I, I think I saw once, but you know, whatever. But the point is, is that uh, <laughs> the point is that um, there's so much there that I haven't really had time to explore. And part of that, honestly, is like for me, um, I find the Holy Mountain to be such a interesting. Um, I almost want to say enigma, but it's not an enigma because in our culture, when someone says enigma, we assume an enigma is just a puzzle you haven't figured out yet, which is not really Mm -hmm. what it is, right? It's more like a philosophical thing. Like, I forget the term, but in philosophy, there's like those ideas that just are, they don't make sense and they will never make sense and you can't decipher them. That's Mm -hmm. how I feel about his films, that it's more about my reaction to them. And I still have things to react to at Holy Mountain. So that doesn't mean I shouldn't have watched his other movies, but I tend to go back there and think about that movie so much. And so this is like forcing me to think as, maybe not critically, but as intensely on the other movies, while also having fun with two other people instead of me just sitting in a room because my (laughs) wife won't watch it with me. um, (laughs) Thinking about it myself, that's, no, I get to interact with y'all. You know, like, that's that's a big plus. It's also, you know, I'm anxious, too, because as uh, Julia pointed out, there's there's not just pleasant things in these films. And that's Mm -hmm. probably part of the appeal for a lot of people that there's a sense that as they are abstract they are also real and what they're willing to show but i think in um 
2020, we're a lot more sensitive to a male auteur being willing to use violence as a way to tell stories uh, because we're like, uh, this sure, sure, in this case, this might be in service of great art, but uh, does that justify it? You know, and, and we've seen plenty of cases where people use art as an excuse to justify bad behavior. And then the thing itself doesn't even come close to art, you know? So uh, <laughs> I think, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation and one in which, um, you know, he's still alive. He's in his nineties and he's actually had time to think about and respond too. So we have to take into account what he thinks of that as well. Uh, that's interesting to me. And I don't know that we'll resolve anything. That's not really our goal here is to solve the question for you, how you should feel about these movies. But I, I do think it adds both a danger and an excitement for me. Like I'm excited to talk about it, but I'm also anxious because I have, mixed emotions you know and and i have even being unfamiliar with his full filmography i do already have a sentimentality for him um mm. whether that is because of meeting frank povich and him telling me stories or uh famously uh there's a gentleman in the philly film scene who's a very well known piercing and fetish guy and he met uh uh uh, Jodorowsky at a screening and told him that like you know they were hanging out and talking and he told him I have to go because I'm going to a piercing thing and a fetish thing and Jodorowsky was like that sounds cool can I come with you and so famously <laughs> our friend like is email buddies with Jodorowsky because he uh, <laughs> took him to an event where a dude was having his penis separated live and uh, Jodorowsky <laughs> thought that was great <laughs> so uh, so now they're friends if that doesn't make you want to listen to this podcast nothing will yeah. this is why Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, Liam, in terms of, of any concern, I hope they'll, they'll those will be completely removed by my upcoming four-hour YouTube video, which breaks down the Holy Mountain and explains what every single part of it means. Oh, so you God. don't have to think about it anymore and try Gold to do any shit. Sort of shit. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I, again, it, it, I think that there it, it's there's actually something freeing about there being no right answer to a lot of what we're going to be talking about and i think that's something that we're all going to become very familiar with because uh as we've already hinted at several times there's a lot of difficult material that we're going to be covering but also a lot of really fun and interesting and visually stunning material as well julia before we jump into our first short film anything that you're most looking forward to or anything that you're concerned about as we head forward I'm just looking forward to inviting people to delve into his work. And I think that he's someone who is thought of as, as, you know, his works can be difficult, but they're so worth the effort. And I think that if you love film, that you really need to explore what he does. And if you love graphic novels and comics, you should explore what he does because he really is unfettered as an artist more than pretty much any filmmaker I've ever seen where he has these visions that you know mean so much to him, even if they don't mean anything to you, but they like, he has these visions and he sells you a hundred percent on them. And it's so unique. And I think that he's such a worthwhile artist to really explore. Now we're not going to be talking a lot of uh, autobiographical detail about Jodorowsky, at least until we get to his more autobiographical films a little later in his life, but just to give kind of a broad stroke, as you mentioned, Liam, uh, he was uh, born to Jewish Ukrainian parents in Chile. Uh, he didn't have a great childhood, uh, felt very unhappy, alienated, dropped out of college, and then started working in mime, including working with some of the great masters of mime, including Marcel Marceau and Etienne de Croix in, uh, in Paris in the early 1950s. He became part of a theater troupe that kind of specialized in mime. And then in 1957, 
he made over a series of years, I suppose, I think shot between 53 and 57, made a film called La Cravate, uh, also known as La Tete Intervertes. Uh, please uh, forgive my pronunciation. I'm in a country that is, is at least partially French, so I'm, I'm in the general realm, uh, which is a mime adaptation of Thomas Mann's 1940 novella, The Transposed Heads. Not really an adaptation. Uh, if you read a summary of that, like I did, uh, it seems like it's the more conceptual idea of uh, a head and a body being two separate things. But we'll get into that in just a moment. Extremely colorful short film, as uh, you referred to, Julia, stars Alejandro uh, in, in, in the lead, a very young looking, especially if you're used to him being a little bit more grizzled as, uh, as I am. He's so fresh faced and handsome. He's, he's a very handsome guy. And that's something that I don't think uh, I have really, I really thought about at length, even in Jodorowsky's Dune, which at that point, he's a man in his late 80s, very striking, handsome guy, which I'm sure is a part of how he kind of expanded his his cult of personality as he was uh, kind of going through his career. But I want to talk about the short. It is not something I had seen before. This was very new to me. I think at some point it was even considered lost media, but had it been- It was. Uh, that was the thing that I read about that freaked me out. I said it was like lost right after its premiere and only showed up back again in the early 2000s. Yeah. Like, as, as a film junkie, the thought of this, like after its premiere being lost, is inconceivable to me it's like so heartbroken i'm so glad it's found it and we could watch it this is a first time watch for me as well and it was so adorable so i'm not going to go through the the plot uh it, it is something that uh it's kind of simplistic it's almost kind of playful almost childlike in regards to what we're seeing basically we have jodorowsky as someone whose uh lover or wife uh doesn't seem to like both parts of his body meaning both his head and his body uh and but since in this reality you can actually purchase heads that can swap with your own uh you can actually kind of come up with the best combination uh however he keeps getting rejected again and again and again uh sticking with you julia what did you think the, do you think that there's much of the future jodorowsky that you know about in this short and did you like it i i did i did I mean, you definitely see the seeds of what he'll become but this was like the 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 all fun no pain version of jodorowsky <laughs> Because um, he's so cute, and you know, you really get to have his. You know, there's no, this is, there's no dialogue, so it's all mime, and they really get to see him mime as much as because you only get to see it in bits and pieces in this film. But like to have an extended version of that is really beautiful, and to have something really cute, and there's this little love story that's going on, but you also have this grotesque idea of the head swapping. Uh, I think the most the woman that he goes to see who's on the chaise lounge, she's, you know, mm -hmm. kind of slutty and too much makeup and eating candy off the floor. And I was like, that's, <laughs> I, I see that later. Like that comes back later. There's a lot of that kind of uh, overweight prostitute kind of feel in a lot of his stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so she was the most kind of grotesque part of it, I guess. And then the rest of it felt very fairy tale like. And then he has this little, you know, the 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 thing that struck with me at the it was the the very end is when they he and his girl have their final embrace. He the way he moves his hands and he comes in and he like just looks at her and I was like I that's the way every girl wants to be looked at and he nailed it so hard and I was like God oh, I'm already in love with him I mean, I've already been in love with him but then I was like that killed it won my heart so hard it's uh it's interesting that he's such a 
and trained as a physical performer. And that's something that we really see on display in this uh, movie, particularly because there's no dialogue. But I don't really think of him as an actor first, even though the first time I saw him was in El Topo, which he's the lead of. But I think of him as more like, you know, in those kind of films, even though he's, he's doing a lot of odd and unusual things, that he's more of a traditional actor. But here, I mean, you really see that this is a man that has a lot of control over his body. This is a movie about, uh, or a short film, about kind of the... Um, the destruction and the recreation of bodies. And that's something that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit in his later films as well. So yeah, this one was really a lot of fun for me. Uh, I do love this kind of star color. I love the kind of cobbled together sets, the, the kind mm -hmm. of play-like backgrounds that are on display. Amazing that it was made over a s series of years. It does feel to kind of, that, like it does hold together as a complete work. Liam, what did you think of, uh, of this film? I think previously when I thought of uh, his work, I would have described two elements of his work that feel maybe not at odds, but watching this made me think of them as more continuous, and that would be the influence of mime and of surrealism. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think I was thinking them as different because one feels more uh, frivolous, and that is obviously unfair. And in fact, I would say that they have two things in common. They probably have a lot more things in common, but there's two things in common that I think are very present in his work. One is uh, the moment that uh, Julia described, the grotesquerie. They both utilize uh, uh, caricature and grotesquerie to effect. And two, uh, they both uh, believe in performance as a way of reaching truth. Uh, which is interesting in film, especially uh, going into the periods where he's making movies later, where suddenly um, truth meant being as close to reality as possible. That like the, the more real the thing is that you film, the closer you are to something that's true. And that's not surrealism, you know, and that's not <laughs> anything he tries to do. In fact, the more he can be artificial at times, the more it feels like he's getting at something that rings a note you know that that feels like it's connected to life and so um watching this i was reminded like oh the the journey from uh from mime to surrealism is a very fluid linear one actually it's a progression and it's not two aspects of his work that are against each other they are in fact complementary and i really do think that there are aspects of his work later that are um not just mime, but connected to clowning and that sort of performance mm. in general. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the logic of how the scenes work, the way that he set it up. There's even, I feel like, in some of his darkest moments, scenes have punchlines. The punchline might be very upsetting, but that's how the scene is set up. Uh, and, and, and I really appreciate that about it. And it's, again, it, it was very interesting for me watching this because this is not the sort of thing that I would necessarily be stoked to watch outside sure. of this context. Mm -hmm. It's just not usually what I look for. And yet be, knowing him and his art, I was very much being like, oh, okay, I can see a lot of the ideas here being connected to various things that he's interested in. It's uh, one thing that, that kind of stuck out to me is despite the fact that he's obviously had a lot of stage training, that this is a very cinematic work. Yeah. Uh, it, it actually reminded me of, of Georges Méliès' early short films yeah, in the way too. that they use kind of camera trickery to show the removal of heads and things like that. You know, there isn't like fake heads on display here. It's just, you you know, there's a lot of, of set people built into sets and a lot of things kind of just shown out of frame. And I think that it's a really clever way of doing what could be a very difficult 
concept, or, and as you said, an even grotesque concept in a way that, you know, you could show a child this and I think that they would get the central kind of very sweet message at its core. Um, I actually wanted to ask you, Julia, about the concept of mime as an art form. I don't know a lot about it. Frankly, I feel a little embarrassed to say that I'm so restricted in some ways in my thinking of it that, that when I think about mime, I'm still like, you know, trapped in the transparent cube type, right. type <laughs> thinking, pushing against the wind, that sort of thing. Almost, you know, performance art in an irritating sense. But one of the things that's really on display here is the idea that, you know, at its core, mime is telling a story without words and being able to uh, express very intense and complex emotions without the benefit of sound. Do you have any thoughts on mime as an art form and how it's used in this film? Uh, well, I uh, I was a uh, I went to performing arts high school, and mm -hmm. I was in a community theater when I was a little kid. So you do a lot of mime, um, and I, I I don't think I'm particularly good at it. It does take a lot of discipline, and this is obviously something uh, Jodorowsky is amazing at. I think mime is something that doesn't get a lot of play, but you look at silent films, like isn't that what a silent film is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so it, it does have this translation, especially to the screen that people are very used to. And so it's something, you know, because the thing that was so great about silent films was that they were international. You could show them anyway. You didn't you didn't need to translate them in these other languages. You could show them anywhere and it would be understood. So I think that that's why this film works as well. You could show this anywhere and it does have you said you could show it to a kid and you could because it has a cartoonish quality. Every kid gets these stereotypes and they're not going to be upset that someone's heads change because it's just like a cartoon. It's not yes. bloody or gross. It's mm -hmm. kind of cute. Uh, so I think that looking at it and you when you are absorbed in, the, absorbed in the story the way you are, I don't think you look at it and be like, oh, he's a mime. You just look at his body and you see what they're doing and it becomes this character. 100%. And even outside of silent films, we've seen kind of performers uh, that probably their uh, persona reaches back to silent films, but uh, express that same sort of idea where it's, it, they don't have to... Uh, speak in order to express themselves. Usually those performers are very comedic. There is a comedic tone to this as well. And also, you know, there is a lightness to this and a charm that, um, that though we'll see elements of that, I'm sure, in some of the future films, we're not going to be talking a lot about that sort of thing today. Any final thoughts, Liam, on Le Cravat before we move on with a, a very different short film from Jodorowsky? No, I mean, I, I would simply say that I think um, for a lot of folks who might come to his work looking for the craziest of the crazy, uh, a short film that kind of feels like a like a silent children's film, you might not be stoked to take the time to watch that. But I I don't know. I found it really interesting. I loved it. For I had a great time thinking and maybe a good intro to him. Exactly. Honestly. Exactly. Yeah. That's Family what I was going to say. Jodorowsky, you know. Yeah, well, and I'm and I and I'm not saying that everyone will be entertained by it. Like I'm not willing to make that claim, but I do think that um, it should be interesting for you if you're interested in like why what what are the sorts of ways he thinks about telling stories and how that kind of influences his work when he's reaching for something maybe behind the veil. Yes, 100. percent I, I liked the, what you were suggesting as well, Julia. That this is a, a pretty uh, accessible entry point to work that will rapidly become much more difficult and, <laughs> and combative at times. Uh, any final thoughts on Le Cravat before we move on, Julia? Uh, I am excited to move on to this madness. <laughs> That's what I'm excited to do. <laughs> I just want to say, just to finish it off, that it, one of, and you hinted at this, Julia, that because this is a mind performance, you have this performer from Chile who is 
working in uh, Paris with with you know people from all these various backgrounds, but of course they're telling a story that's universal. So there's a kind of universal message that we can all kind of take away from it. The things that we're going to be talking about for the rest of this episode might not be as easy to pick out what the messages that we're supposed to be uh, taking away might be, and maybe there's no message at all, and maybe even the search for the message is folly. Uh, with that in mind, uh, in 1960, Jodorowsky moved to Mexico and he settled down in Mexico City, and he became involved in the Panic Movement, which was uh, basically a response to more kind of uh, conservative surrealism that was going on at the time. It was a theatrical troupe, I guess you would call it, that would put on these wild live performances. Uh, and one of those performances, lucky for us, was filmed or I should say partially filmed, partially documented. Uh, this was at the Paris Festival of Free Expression in May 1965. There was a four hour long performance um, <laughs> called uh, Melodrama Sacramental. Uh, the film was called Teatro Sin Fin, uh, which is basically a, an assembly of footage from this uh, quote unquote happening uh, performed by the Panic Movement led by Alejandro Jodorowsky in this particular performance in May 1965. It is let's say a trip <laughs> to watch it's in black and white it is chaotic to say the least uh julia's already suggested and and made a good point that there is some animal violence on display here uh particularly lots and lots of turtles and other animals and there there's a lot there that is designed to provoke and shock on stage uh and it's funny that we started with this kind of one extreme of surrealism and we're moving uh it, even though it was years in real time to, for us, the very other uh, kind of arc of, of extreme in terms of the content that we're going to be talking about now before we settle somewhere in the middle with this first feature-length movie. Teatro Sin Fin, I want to start with you, Julia. What did you think of this performance? Wow. It's crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, I was reading about, so the panic movie that, that, that this was with was partially inspired by the theater of cruelty, that yes. uh, Antonin Artaud did. And I was reading about it and it said uh, there was how they described it was a primitive ceremonial experience intended to liberate the human subconscious and reveal man to himself. And I was like, that's all of Jodorowsky's work right there. There it is in one <laughs> sentence. I was like, yeah, that's what it is. It's like this experience that's intended to like make you reveal yourself to yourself. Um, and I think, you know, as, as again, again, the animal cruelty, no good, but I understand what he's trying to do. I mean, I just feel like he could have done it a different way, but there's everything, you know, you have people who are naked, you have people who are rubbing at each other, you have uh, Jodorowsky in leather underwear, you have people just screaming and making crazy noises. And I can see, I can, I, I admire the passion and I admire the ambition. Do I want to sit there for four hours for that? I don't, but I would. That's the thing. If you're like, Julia, you can travel back in time to 1965 and go to this four-hour performance of this, I would be like, 100%, sign me up. I would go. I would go. So just to give, uh, for those who haven't seen this, an, an idea of the sort of material uh, that, that is uh, contained within, The Happening, as I said, it starred Jodorowsky dressed in motorcycle leather, featured him slitting the throats of two geese, taping two snakes to his chest, having himself stripped and whipped. Uh, other scenes include a staged murder of a rabbi, a crucified chicken, a giant vagina giving birth to Jodorowsky, naked women covered in honey, and the throwing of live turtles into the audience. We do see some of this on display. Again, a four-hour performance. One of the 
one of the really interesting and fun things about this film is that it shows the, the kind of the attempts to clean up afterwards. Like it ends and we see the audience react to it and then we see people trying to clean up and all I could think of was like, my God, the cleanup must have taken forever with the sheer amount of carnage and animal flesh and oh my gosh it must just yeah, be because I, I was in theater forever right so of course i'm thinking of that like as they're doing it i'm like man who's gonna clean this up this is madness <laughs> but of course it's like being birthed from a vagina and all this you're just like yes of course you are of course you are we love you jodorowsky please do this <laughs> uh liam uh again a lot of shocking material here sometimes so shocking that it was almost comical if you can separate yourself from the animal cruelty aside of it uh like certainly uh jodorowsky birthing himself out of this kind of rubber vagina uh is something that was both you know uh shocking and amusing at the same time what did you think of tietro sinfin I, this is gonna, <laughs> this is gonna sound crazy, but I would have rather been in the room and get smacked with a turtle than to watch the footage. Mm. Be- there's just there's a distance with the foot, and for me, I've 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 certainly never been to anything that involved animal cruelty, but I've been to immersive events that were disorienting and at times upsetting. Sure. Um, and there's something about the immersion of it and the breaking down of your assumptions about what is theater that I find interesting, even if some of the methods sometimes are stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, uh, and so I, I love stuff like that. And it's, it's actually something that I, you know, I've talked to uh, my, my, uh, my other co-host Josh Alvarez about because being in Philly, we both have friends who've done stuff in the fringe fest. And what's great about the Philly fringe fest is that they really just, if they can find a room for you, they'll let you do your thing. And so, right. like, there's not a lot of money in doing your thing, but all kinds of crazy things happen. And so it's really tempting when that fest comes around to just get a pass and go to whatever you can go to, which means you see some of the most amazing things you've ever seen and you see some of the dumbest things you've ever seen. And that's just how it goes. And what's so funny about us as two uh, artistically minded Philadelphians is our measure of what qualifies as great and what qualifies as stupid um, are completely different. You know, we right. are we are similar in so many other ways, and yet we would walk out of something together, and he'd be like, "That was cool," and I'd be like, "No, thank you," and or or the or the opposite. And um, there's just something about the experience of that. So, you know, on a level of art, am I convinced that this is the best way to create the effect that he wants? Uh, I don't I don't think so. I specifically find animal cruelty to be. I, I, the insight that like we're gonna feel something about that, like I, I just don't know where you're gonna get. I, I, I'm very skeptical of animal cruelty as a, as a way to make anyone feel anything other than specifically for that specific animal. That being said, I also would want to sit through the four hour. Like I just something about the experience of being there sounds really cool. Whereas watching the footage, I felt a certain amount of distance from it, and sometimes I had trouble feeling fully engaged with it. Uh, and that was frustrating for me because I wanted to feel engaged with it again. Not, not that it, because I'm going to figure it out and go, Oh, I get it. The snakes are Jesus Christ. Like, I don't think that's what's going to happen, but if I'm engaged with it, I'm really emotionally like I'm, I'm in what it is I'm feeling. And I felt like at times I wasn't feeling anything because I wasn't really, um, I don't know, in some ways plugged in. And maybe that's not a limitation of this. Maybe that's a limitation of me that I need to no, be in No, no, I agree with you. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a theater performance meant to be experienced live yeah, and be shocked yeah. live. And you can feel that distance. 
obviously, because it's not, it, you don't feel that you, although you feel the shock, it is removal. You're not there and you're not going to get splattered with whatever they're, you know, throwing out in the audience. Uh, so I see what you mean, but, and, but it's also, you know, I'm sad that there isn't a version right. on film of the four hours because right. I would probably <laughs> right. watch it. Well, and I, I also wonder like to what extent this is like an effect of, like when it comes to watching a video of something, I've seen so many shocking things on video now, thanks to the internet. Like I wonder right. for the folks who watched this original short film, even though they weren't in the room for the event, this was probably just as shocking to some extent, or or possibly as shocking, you know. Um, and it, it, and so like I guess that's where my not that I would expect it to feel exactly the same, but I, I was thinking like, man, if I was less desensitized <laughs> what would it be like to watch this filmed version of this event whereas being in the room someone throws a turtle at me i'm gonna have a response no matter what like there's no way around that you know so i think this is going to see this performance would be just as shocking now as it would have been in 1965 yeah. so you have yeah. to look at it from that lens of that long ago how incredibly crazy it is and how he's always been ahead of his time but this is like forever ahead of his time yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, one word that I'm going to stay away from in regards to Jodorowsky and all of the episodes that we record this podcast is the word pretentious, which is a word that I think has been labeled at on pretty much every great artist uh, in the history of, uh, well, certainly since that word has been in common use. I think it's something that people say about Jodorowsky sometimes. It's something that people say about performance art a lot. I do think that a little bit of pretentiousness is kind of necessary to have the confidence to put on performances like this. But I do want to say in terms of, of that idea of would you have sat through this four-hour performance uh, I think we all agree. It seems like we're all in agreement that, yes, we would have. But to me, this would fit in the category of a, a few things that I've experienced in my life, which is I do it so that I can say afterwards I have done it, though I may not enjoy it at the moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know, where I know those feels. <laughs> <laughs> where you're in the middle of something, you're like, oh, I don't know. This really isn't for me. I feel super uncomfortable, but it's going to make for a great story <laughs> afterwards, and I'm going to be glad to have had that experience. Uh, I think probably there are a lot of people in that crowd that day who probably felt that same way. I will say that one going to the technical side of this movie, um, it's it makes for a frustrating watch. There are parts of it where it seems like people are standing in front of the camera. You're not right. getting the best shots. It really does kind of recreate the feeling of being in a slightly obstructed performance uh, where you're not getting to kind of soak it in as much as you want. So if the idea of this as a short film is to recreate the feeling of attending while also uh, putting forth that feeling of chaos within it, I think it's a success on that level. That said, it makes for frustrating viewing. Uh, not that I feel like if there is a narrative to it, and I don't think that there is, that it would make any more um, concrete sense if I had attended it in person. I wanted to just quick comment a little bit too, Doug. Like uh, sometimes we label things as pretentious that have ambition of yes, any kind. Absolutely, like, my man has big ambitions, and so maybe that. And, and and I'm not even saying that he's always successful with his big ambitions, uh, but it, you can't have those kind of ambitions and not rub someone the wrong way. Like, well, who are you to pretend that in your four hour noise performance you're going to reach some <laughs> higher truth well i don't know maybe he won't but he's trying to do something like i the idea that like we're all just supposed to have no ambitions of any kind doesn't really work even though i don't think that means there's nothing you could accuse of being pretentious in a negative way in that it's pretending towards something that it really has no claim to uh I, there's a real effort i think sometimes by audiences to you know anything that's ambitious 
becomes pretentious. And that's just not mm-hmm. fair. It's not fair to an artist who's trying to do something. The question should only be, do they succeed at all or not? You know, do they get somewhere unique and interesting or not? You know, and not I don't like, even think that matters because I think yeah. about how many bad movies I've seen. Sure. I'm like, okay, it's a terrible film, but I gave you A for effort. Like you're really, really <laughs> right. trying. Right. And you're I swinging that, for the fences. That's what I, yeah, I always give points that's for swinging all for the I fences. Care about. If you give if you have like the passion and the enthusiasm, even if it's a terrible film, good for you, man. You made it. And like that's a hard thing to do. So I give anybody props. It's a, a lot of my kind of background in, in terms of my interest in film come from micro budget filmmaking, shot on video filmmaking. I have a podcast about it. I've written a lot about it. And that is a place where you see ambition restricted with talent and restrict, uh, uh, ambition restricted with um, financial uh, abil- ability and thing like that, things like that. But that in, in that sort of situation – what you see is are people who some people are just like oh I just want to recreate Friday the Thirteenth and that's fine but some people are like I want to do something that I could never do if I had money I can only do this in the realm of having no money and having complete artistic freedom and th- that is where you get both the most incredible unique experiences but also some of the worst trash <laughs> imaginable <laughs> which which is great right because you don't know and it and it comes down to the person who's kind of unfettered with the restrictions that you sometimes get if you're kind of trained in a more traditional way. And I think what we see on display here is a lot of creativity. I also want to mention, by the way, that these are not just uh, the the pure vision of Jodorowsky we've been talking about so far. Right, this is a right. collaborative vision on display. Uh, but I do think that uh, in terms of the sensibilities of Jodorowsky that we're going to see in his films going forward uh, and in uh, Fondo and, and List, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes, it's good that we have this as a kind of buffer point between his first short film and where we're going <laughs> because it starts to make a little bit more sense. Otherwise, the jump from, you know, kind of a sweet mind performance to Fando and Liz might seem kind of uh, extreme. Uh, but I, I, I love what you're saying, uh, Julia. To me, ambition, high ambition uh, on film or on stage, I'll take that over bland but competent lack of ambition any day of the week. 100% agree. So with that said, after this performance uh, in the mid-60s, uh, Jodorowsky would go on to do all sorts of creative ventures, including creating his first comic strip, Annabelle 5, uh, 1966. Uh, Which he was would awesome, then, by the way. And we'll, we'll ho- hopefully talk about that in a future episode. Uh, I, I really want to kind of break down what his interests were. I think that's another thing about the, the creation of a comic strip and the writing of it. You want to talk about kind of a pure vision. Maybe we'll get a little look about uh, a little look into his mindset in the mid-60s when we talk about that a little bit later. The following year, 1967, he created his first feature film, Fondo and Liss, loosely based on a play written by Fernando Arabal, uh, who was working on his performance art with Jodorowsky at that time. It premiered at the 1968 Acapulco Film Festival, where it instigated a riot among those who objected to the film's content. I want to talk about that a little bit as well. And it was then banned in Mexico afterwards. A very controversial film, uh, a very difficult film in a lot of ways, but at least one that I'm hoping our listeners uh, <laughs> have the opportunity to check out. Let's take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about Alejandro Jodorowsky's first feature film, Fondo and Liss. Join us after this. Había una vez una ciudad maravillosa llamada Tar. Cuando sucedió la gran catástrofe, desaparecieron todas las ciudades, menos Tar. Si sabes buscarla, 
la encontrarás. Cuando llegues a Tar, conocerás la eternidad. Fondo and Liss follows Fondo and his paraplegic girlfriend Liss through a barren, post-apocalyptic wasteland in search of the mythical city of Tar, a place where one will know the true nature of eternity and reach enlightenment. On their journey, they see many odd and profoundly disturbing characters and events. That is sort of to a very broad level. Fondo and Liz from the year 1968, directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, uh, written uh, by Jodorowsky and Fernando Arabal, and uh, I guess based on his play, Fernando's play, starring Sergio Kleiner as Fando, actually a very successful actor, still working to this day, uh, and the late Diana Mariscal as Liz. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know much about her career as an actress. She actually passed away uh, of a kind of a terrible accident, I believe, in the 1990s. Uh, we'll talk about both of their performances since they spend so much of the time on screen in this film. And as I mentioned before our break, yes, when this movie premiered at the Acapulco Film Festival in 1968, it caused a riot and Jodorowsky actually had to uh, sneak away uh, to a, a limousine outside of the theater. Uh, this is a movie that provoked some very strong reactions in the 1960s uh, and kind of, I think, gets lumped in by some people with the work of Fellini. I, honestly, uh, it reminded me a little bit also of the work of John Waters, if you want to talk about sort of the some of the bad taste and... Uh, uh, and extreme content that is on display. A lot of naked bodies, a lot of mud, a lot of kind of very controversial subject matter. We're gonna get into it. I wanna start with my co-host, Julia. Julia, what did you think of Fondo and Liz? And is this your first time seeing it? Uh, no, I had actually seen it before uh, a few years ago. And it it does have kind of also that like kind of a Godard, Truffaut, French New Wave kind of thing mm. going on as well with a lot of like jump cuts and the audio strange. And uh, I, I feel like it's such a, I love it because you see the progression of where uh, El Tobo comes from this and how Holy Mountain comes from this. And you see this of where he's going and where, from where he's been and to have... You know, it's also, even though this movie should just really be called Fondo, Lisa's kind of a, a character on the side, right? But it is, in El Topo and Holy Mountain, you have this man who eventually will find a woman into his travels. And this is someone who starts out with one and mm -hmm. how he doesn't, but it's not a partnership, really. It's a very uh, temptatious, like, temptatious and uh, their relationship's not great. But I think mm. that it doesn't need to be, they don't need to have a great relationship for it to still be a love story because there's a lots of relationships, people who love each other madly, who are terrible for each other. Sure. And I think that this is probably one of those instances that they really do love each other. They just are not good together at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very episodic film in a lot of ways to the point where characters and how they seem to be reacting to each other. And I speak, I'm speaking specifically of Fando and Liz in this case, uh, they, it seems to change from scene to scene. They'll be very caring and loving and, and, uh, um, uh, they affectionate towards one another and in the very next scene Fonda is flying off the handle and and very angry and sometimes it doesn't seem like there's anything specific that's provoking those feelings but you know this is a movie that as you said is very tempestuous it really does feel um it does give me that impression and this is something that we will i think feel as audiences watching some of the movies going going forward that you might see anything 
on the screen. Like you, it, it might cut to a different angle and anything could be shown and you just kind of got to go along for the ride at that point. And you're That's left- That's what Jodorowsky's films are, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, that, absolutely. That every one of his films is that you, I have no idea what's coming next. It could be yeah. anything. That's what's it so exciting about it. It, it really, I mean, it's why I think his movies also really benefit from rewatching because once you have now prepared yourself for some of the imagery you're going to see, then you can start dissecting it and watching it on kind of a larger scope. Liam, over to you. Is this your first watch of Fondo and Liz? What did you think? It was my first watch, and I found myself, um, I, I, I agree with y'all that you never, in all of his films that I've seen at least, you never know what you're going to see. There's always going to be images that, uh, sort of almost like the aesthetic of the image are more important than whatever story that's being told, assuming there's even a narrative at all, you know? Um, but what I found interesting about this one is it also felt more than the other films I've seen, like a, like a Greek myth sort of structure, sure. even though it's mm -hmm. set in this post-apocalyptic future. It's it, even split into kind of chapters. Like, yeah. 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 And, and so I had this sort of feeling and it was the first, one since I started watching his films that I started to think like, is there a context here I'm not getting? Like so right. to some extent, I think that a little bit with Holy Mountain, only because I know how important the tarot is to that movie and I don't know a lot about the tarot. And I wonder, uh, you know, the more that I knew about the tarot, would there be resonances in the film? But I don't fool myself into thinking and that's the key. And once I know the tarot, the movie will suddenly make sense. That's not that's not what's going on. But because I did start to think, like, is this related to another myth? Like, is this adapted for something? I suddenly started to have that feeling again, which I kind of left behind of, can I figure this out? And luckily, the film, even though it's his, his first uh, feature-length film, it pretty quickly took that notion away from me. That the things that happen are visceral, but they don't actually encourage you to try to like put the pieces together. And I was very happy for that because I, I was starting to feel like maybe there's a context here I need to get. Do I need to Wikipedia? So should, should I have read the original play to know the differences right. between the film mm -hmm. and the play? And pretty quickly I was like, oh, no, forget all that. Just think about your responses to it. And it, it is interesting. Like I really thought about the movie as the story of two people who are uh, – there's two things happening, right? They are in some sense in love, though in each scene, the amount to which they appear to be in love is different, right? And two, they're headed towards some place that feels like a, a telos, you know, an, an end place, a promised city, a heaven, a, a, a end reality. This could be, you know, anything from Jerusalem to the 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 commune of the future uh, communist state. Whatever it is, they're headed to. I, th some... I think also maybe you can think of it as a non-physical place, like a nirvana. Right. Or well, like that's what I'm saying. Place. I think all. Well, this is my bias, Doug. All those things are non-physical states too. Like <laughs> <laughs> this is whatever ideal thing. And right. and f and the only thing I got out of it that felt at all like not like a lesson, but sort of a thing I took away from it was like um, all of the the barriers between them getting there or the things they experience their barriers, not just to their journey to this thing that may or may not exist. They're, they're also barriers to them loving each other that, that whether those barriers are interior or exterior. Uh, and, and again, when I say exterior barriers, don't, don't, you know, when they're walking up a path, when he's walking up a path, and there's a bunch of ladies with bowling balls who throw the bowling balls at him. 
I don't think you're going to watch it and go, oh, that's clearly the bourgeoisie. Like, I don't think it's like <laughs> you're going to decipher that. But, but there are like very clear resonances to me, like when Lise passes away and all these men come up and they basically take communion, right? They cut off pieces mm-hmm. of her and take communion. And then he lifts her up like a cross on his back. Like, again, getting the resonances of Christianity from that doesn't mean you've figured out some special meaning, but it is like... Uh, probably meant to give you that feeling you know and so um uh, uh, that idea that then they they pass you know she's murdered by him and he i guess just dies in the dirt you know just lets the earth grow over him but then we're left with this image of them in some after state finally just loving each other is like a really interesting ending um and one that i found like weirdly compelling in a way uh that i wasn't expecting to have i expected more of the interesting um not always shocking but compelling imagery uh and 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 the ending actually made me a little bit emotional it's uh one of the things that i was struggling with a little bit while watching fondo and Liz is the fact that jodorowsky admittedly did not have a lot of knowledge about filmmaking when he was making this movie So he was learning a lot of it on the fly. He was taking risks that a experienced filmmaker probably never would take, which is which is great, right? I mean, again, it's 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 swinging for the fences, and you really see that on display here. But then you start wondering: Are continuity issues uh, meant to be something to interpreted, or is that a technical limitation? This is a movie that's in black and white, but despite the fact that it's in black and white, uh, it still has a. Um, a visual style that is very reminiscent of the Jodorowsky films that we'll see as we continue throughout the 70s and 80s. Uh, there's there's a lot of of really striking material that we we see on screen, uh, and and I love the the fact that I didn't know what to expect next, and I didn't know how I was supposed to be feeling about it. That said, there are moments in this movie, particularly when it comes to the backgrounds of of Fondo and Liz as characters. We get a little bit of that with Liz. We get a little bit of, of it with Fondo. We see that, you know, even though it's not stated outright, we cut to, you know, young characters that are obviously supposed to be analogs to them. Uh, and they are experiencing things in a surreal way that is meant to, in some way, represent things that they went through in their life that potentially brought them to the point that we see them at the beginning of this movie. I, I'm being somewhat vague, but it's because it's based interpreta- interpretation, but also some of this can be seen as quite disturbing. And I do want to talk about it a little bit. Specifically, I want to start with talking about there is a sequence in this where a young girl that is meant to be Liz, I believe, uh, is watching a, um, uh, a marionette, a marionettist, I suppose, on stage, played by Jodorowsky Jod- himself. Jodorowsky, the puppet master himself. Yes, manipulating the puppet and then cutting its strings in front of her she gets very upset or it seems to be upset by it. He lifts her backstage where she is, uh, at first seems to be delighted with what she sees back there and then very disturbed by the people that are back there who lay down on the ground with her. Uh, it then cuts to a series of eggs being broken. I think the iconography here is pretty clear that there's some sort of molestation or rape that's being shown, on, or, or, or but it's never overtly said. It's just something that you would interpret from that sequence. Uh, I'm going to start with, uh, with you, Liam. Is, am I misinterpreting that from what you see? Is it folly for me to attempt to make literal sense of what we're seeing? I, at the very least, I think it's supposed to exude a mood of that sort of thing occurring. Oh, 100%. I, I, again, 
I'm saying 100% because that's the feeling I had. Um, and, and I know we're being a bit repetitive here, but I think it's good now to set the tone so that none of us are claiming to know like when Yodorowsky was, by the way, uh, vaguely remembering a play that he didn't have in front of him, apparently, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, and doing his own work uh, to, to sort of come up with his own narrative. You know, maybe he didn't intend a literal... Uh, assault of a child by adults but that's what you get and it feels very much about instrumentalizing her treating her like an object treating her as an object of desire and in fact that relationship of her as an object of desire is used by fando against her later in the film um yes and and i think it's you know and and is directly intercut with those scenes from her childhood and so uh i think I think it is supposed to suggest that the amount to which it's a literal, uh, you know, uh, pedophilic sexual assault. I don't know. Maybe it's meant to be interpretive of the ways that, uh, you know, men uh, are are putting uh, sexualization on her maybe before she is fully able to be an adult. I, I don't know. Sure. Uh, but I also don't know if he knows. I, you know, it's very possible. He's like, this is very upsetting. This is what we want. You know, because it, it is very clear to me that whatever happens to both of them in those sequences, that that is a trauma that they are still processing. You know, it whether is. whether that is for her, this treatment that she undergoes, which, by the way, seems like a very direct uh, trauma for her or for him it seems a little more interpretive about the relationship between him and his mother uh, his mother and the community and then all three of them to his father who by the way like escapes from the grave earlier in the movie anyway um, uh, after placing him in the grave and then leaves with these women that he is incapable of engaging with sexually so you know it, you know, use whatever Freudian thing you want to, to think about that but um, I, I think it's interesting like those are both meant I think to be kind of you know present with them in what's happening now um, but also like uh, difficult to know exactly you know what what we're supposed to take from them yeah there's some sort of trauma that is being suggested that we don't know necessarily the exact details of are we but supposed it is... to assume that that trauma is what causes her paraplegic now that state? is what that is what I was wanted to get into next because we never know why she is is paraplegic we just know that she has to basically be carried or wheeled around throughout this movie i think the suggestion is that some of fondo's uh more extreme emotions comes with frustration based on that but we don't know if it's a psychosomatic thing we don't know if it's based on trauma but i do think that there is an interpretation that is very valid that that it's based on that 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 you know the characters that we see in this movie are the result of trauma uh do, do you have any feeling on some of those kind of uh, those kind of two sequences that kind of display that trauma, Julia? I think it's interesting that you have, you know, Lisa is, is used as a sex object in this film a lot. And there's a lot of her yeah. being groped and touched, not only by Fonda, who, you know, it's, it's sometimes consensual with him and sometimes not, it seems. But then at the end, she's uh, literally like the host, the God, the like person that they're yeah. taking communion of. Mm -hmm. So she's transcended to this other state. And I don't know, what she's done to deserve it because she gets murdered. So what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yes. Obviously they're both very traumatized and what, you know, what this transition of, of what her, her body becoming something different after death uh, is very curious. Yeah. I, I found myself interpreting that in like 
uh, again, this is just the way that I was feeling about it. So no one think I, I'm saying this is what it is. But I found myself thinking about that uh, that sort of uh, uh, dichotomy of uh, you know the the Madonna and the sex worker, right? Like right, that, right. That you right, know right. The, the whatever, and that f- in various ways, Fondo goes back and forth. And you know, I also wonder to what extent her mm, uh, not having use of her legs is also kind of metaphorical, you know, like, and it, it was funny because as the movie started, I really thought this is a result of the the Great War or whatever happened. And only as the movie went forward did I start to think about this other thing that she has this history that now he feels burdened by. Uh, and it focuses a lot on that. But that idea that like he's so frustrated with her and so... Um, unsympathetic towards her and then once he's finally you know crossed over the line and punished her she then becomes this object of guilt and it's the the combination there of gender politics and catholic guilt into one heady brew felt very much like an essay i read in seminary or something <laughs> like this this very much felt like a a, a schusler forenza take on 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 the you know what we do with christ and all this stuff so um you know I, I i i again i don't know that there's like a one explanation but as i was watching it what i found myself thinking about was um this was this is a way that uh, uh, especially men within a very uh, Catholic context might think of women as uh, uh, a burden uh, and then eventually a sacrifice that we conflate with this deified sacrifice that we have you know sort of put within to our religious structures and then she literally becomes his cross to bear which like, mm she never asked for right she'd rather be alive (laughs) that would be much better than him carrying her around like that or even him laying himself in the dirt and allowing the earth to consume him that was also not something that anybody wanted you know but the idea that like uh sort of as you said julia that she's a minor character it's like the whole whether the world is assaulting him or working his favor everything is revolving around fondo in this film and i don't think the film is like not critical about that i don't know that it's analytical about it but it definitely like he is a problem as much as he is this the focus it felt a lot to me like uh you know how a racer head is really just kind of david lynch's response to like marriage and becoming a father and you can totally see that in the film Mm -hmm. like this to me felt like he's burdened by monogamy and he just doesn't want it like he can't fit into that role he's trying and like everything is just this exciting distraction because now this one thing is so monotonous which is a terrible way to think about relationships but that's what it came off like to me and i was like oh man he just he doesn't want to be in this relationship but he keeps you know, it's this thing of like tagging her along and she'll do anything for him and that, you know, she's his slave and he's going to chain her up and she's okay with it, even though she's not okay with it. And this, I'm sure for him, it's this very powerful feeling to have somebody to be at your beck and call, even though he has to be at hers. So she's also, she's, you know, he's also her slave because he has to carry her around and he has to cart her around. Uh, and I don't know why Jodorowsky made them carry him carry her in the most awkward ways. He never, no he never, never once gives her a piggyback ride. I was like, just give her a piggyback <laughs> ride, man. And he just won't. I was like, and these poor actors, I was like, he put them through so much, like right. so much of running up mountains and dangerous, like so much dangerous stuff. I was like, ah, it's crazy. Uh, it's <laughs> Jodorowsky always. I would love to be in one of his films, but he would push you so yes. hard, mm-hmm. so crazy. 
I just I, I that brings me back to thinking about what he put his son through in the preparation oh for making making Dune, where he had him basically training for two years straight to be a perfect physical and mental specimen, and then didn't make the movie. <laughs> no, you see Bron- that's Brontus, and wait till you see Brontus yeah. uh, in of Reality because I was pissed he didn't get an Oscar for that because he is outstanding. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me in this movie, and this is, again, we're only talking about our own interpretation. I think that at this point that should be fairly obvious. But there is a moment in this movie where Fondo and Liz are accosted by um, a group of drag artists, I guess you would say, in the context of this movie, men dressed as women. Uh, I don't think there's any suggestion necessarily that they are trans, that they this is just supposed to be performers, maybe. But the, the thing that I wanted to point out is that Fondo seems delighted by these performers. Like he seems like as happy as he seems in the entire movie, extremely comfortable. They take him away, strip him to his underwear, and then dress him in women's clothing. And at, there's a moment in it where he he seems to find kind of a com- comfort and serenity that we never see on him for the rest of the movie. We also know that this character is meant to be impotent, though I don't know if that's ever explicitly made, but it's used in a lot of summaries of this movie. Is there a suggestion? I never, I never thought yeah, about I, that. <laughs> I, it, it, I've seen it stated, even though it's, again, like I, I never see it. I think maybe because of your interpretation of that part where he's chased by the women with the bowling balls, that that's supposed to be representative of his inability to please a woman sexually and that when he like like his father could his father who then returns from the grave and he takes yeah. his spot in the grave these are all again wild interpretations but i wanted to see if anyone else had thoughts on that as an interpretation that maybe he's homosexual maybe he's bisexual maybe his sexuality is tied up and complicated by this in a way that he can't come to terms with that was kind of one of the takeaways i had from it that he uses liz as this symbol of something that he is not finding sexually desirable and a lot of his frustrations come out of that do you think that that's a valid interpretation julia or am i like way off base i don't know i guess i hadn't looked at it that deeply but i do think that they are both quite i mean they both seem quite delighted. Not, I mean, Fondo seems, right, the moon, right. but Lisa's kind of into it as well. And they do, you know, they yeah. do this gender swap where they put her in his clothes as that's, well. That's true, absolutely. And then they kind of make out as you know in their in the respective, and then they laugh about it. And they generally seem to have a good time in that moment together, which I don't think you really see them do for most of that film. So it's interesting that maybe like under if you take those chains of gender away they feel freer and like they don't Mm. have to he doesn't have to be this powerful man now and she doesn't have to be this crying girl now and they can be themselves Mm. it it just seems like in some ways a very progressive uh uh interpretation of that uh or or even presentation of that if i'm interpreting it correctly it could also of course be interpreted as a, a very much an othering of these characters dressed as women and and you know meant especially when we realize that a lot of this imagery is meant to shock but i chose to and maybe and i i think sincerely interpreted in a in a, a, a more um um, in a way that Jodorowsky is coming to terms with some of those gender roles and the expectations of those gender roles. I guess maybe this is something we're going to come back to in future films. Mm. Liam, did you feel any of that as well, or or uh, is that just on me? No, in the moment uh, when I was watching it, that's what I thought, that um, there's something very attractive to Fondo about these, these folks, and he, uh, you know, changes his appearance, and then he discovers that... Uh, uh, that uh, Lisa cha- changed her appearance, and I think he that instead of that being off putting to him, you know, like that 
well, he, if he can do this, she can as well. They both seem very happy. It's one of the, the there's not a lot of them enjoying each other in this movie, which is no. one of the reasons sometimes it's hard to be like, oh, this is a love story because they do spend so much time sort of in conflict. But uh, this is one of those moments where they do seem to be really joyful. Um, interestingly, uh, I don't know if either one of you had the opportunity to watch uh, on the a recent Blu-ray release of this film, there's a, a thing where Yorowski's talking about this movie and some of his inspiration for the movie. I don't know if you guys got a chance to watch that at all. Not tell us. Oh, no, it's, I, I, it's, yeah, I listened to some of his is, commentary, but none. It is characteristically unhelpful. Like he does it, the, you know, <laughs> if you think you're going to get something because he reveals something, no, 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 no. But it is, he does sort of mention this scene a little bit in the sense of like for him, the kind of divine creative part of what they're searching for is not just love, but some sort of like divine creative source, some, some pure something. And, um, uh, uh, I think there's a suggestion that like in their willingness to let go of those generals in that scene, that there's, they're connecting to something more pure and more, mm-hmm. um, creative you know but i think it's temporary i mean for him the only revelation i had in the his whole talking about it because it's not you know of course it's not he's not interested in being like by the way the ladies with the bowling balls or this like that's not what he's gonna do but what he does say is that he feels like the film ends very much with only in the next whatever their next world is can they truly just love each other and mm. i thought oh that's funny. That's what I thought it meant. So it was kind of like one of the few times ever I've seen him reveal anything. But I get the feeling that's because that's what the play is about. So it's like him being like, yeah, I, you know, I made my own movie. But in essence, this is what the play sort of relates to. Um, but at, at the heart of the play, and it's less of the heart here. It's just one event among many events of betrayal is this idea that one lover murders the other, you know. Right. Um, but what's interesting is while that's a horrifying moment of the movie, um, he's created so many crazy moments in the film. It didn't strike me as it strikes me as a, a climax, but not as the central point of the story. Mm, and, 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 you know, when he was summarizing what the movie was about, that's, that's for him what the movie's about. And I was just thought that was really interesting because I thought like, Man, I'm I'm much more as important as that scene was. I'm much more thinking about other parts of the movie than that. That just felt like the natural sort of end of of these conflicts that they've been going through and a tragic moment of transformation, you know. But for him, that's sort of where that that that's where the movie is is almost focused, and that was really interesting to me. I find, and uh, I, I might be wrong on this, but I think of Jodorowsky in some ways like Werner Herzog in that when he is talking about his own movies, that there's an element of myth-making involved. Right, so it's I hard about to that com- too. It's hard to completely trust, uh, and, and, and I think by design, completely trust when they're talking about their movies that everything they're saying is the literal truth because the bigger truth, like even when it comes down to this riot that occurred, right? I mean, look, I'm, I'm reading... This, this account of the riot, I don't know for sure that it happened. I don't know if Jodorowsky ran out to his limo because he was terrified that the crowd was going to tear him apart. There's a lot of reported riots. There's a lot of reported people fainting at movies. So who knows how much of this is marketing, who, how much of it is myth-making, but it's okay. We're talking about it and we're discussing it. But I, want, I, I do want to say that in this commentary, there's a part in this movie where uh, Fondo and Liz are, are going through the wasteland and a gentleman comes with a syringe and takes blood from Liz, puts it into a glass and drinks it. 
Not just Rasky... a brandy snifter. Can I just a brandy that? snifter? Oh, yes. yes, that's right. And then gives it to I guess his son who licks it clean. Anyway, it, it w- whatever Th- that uh, Jodorowsky on the commentary says that that was real blood that was really of being course. drawn. It is all shown in real one shot, right? And it and it absolutely uh, seems to be. The fact is, it may not be, but it does seem to be. Um, <laughs> but whether it is or not, in the reality that is now presented to us. And as is being told to me by Jodorowsky, that's real blood. So when I'm watching that movie, that's all I can think about. That guy's drinking blood for sure. And that's just like, like the a, a small example of that sort of bigger than life myth making that you see in some of these films that, and that we're going to be talking about going forward. Um, I want to talk to both of you about because this is a really a movie that is about a series of moments or a series of images or a series of of. Uh, small segments that that kind of piece together as a whole. But when I think back on it, there's a lot of these moments that kind of stick out. I want to start with you, Julia. What were the most resonant moments in this movie for you, whether it be images, whether it be sections, whether it be conversations? I think about a lot of the imagery, uh, which are, are become concurrent, like we see in a lot of his other films. Uh, uh, Cross-dressers we see in almost every one of his films. Right. Uh, people with handicapped. We have uh, in this scene, uh, there was a scene of when his father dies, he reaches into his heart and pulls out a bird, which we see Absolutely. again in Holy mm-hmm. Mountain. Um, baby dolls in everything we watched. <laughs> every single one. I was like, wow, baby dolls. Okay, a big thing. Um, I, I think I just, I like, even though, I like how Diff- how human the the Fondo and Lee seem that they don't you know these aren't characters that you are necessarily supposed to like uh, and you shouldn't really Fondo's kind of a monster and uh, so you know but he does look to me like if you took Andrew Garfield and Jean-Pierre Lyod and like mashed them up it would be uh, it would be Fondo that's my film nerd <laughs> thing um, <laughs> Um, I, of course, got very excited when I saw Jodorowsky show up, even though he had a very small part and not a very good part. I mean, a good man. Um, I, You know, it just looks so... I feel like he pushes everybody he works with to their extreme and tries to make everything as uninviting as possible. So let's film in the most difficult places. And I think about, like, he had a woman, there's a woman in the film who's, like, very heavily pregnant, and when they pull back, they're on this crazy cliff that I'm like, I don't know how she got up there. How do you ask <laughs> nine months like pregnant woman to get up on this crazy cliff? Or all of these, uh, you know, the, all these senior citizens who are, are on these crazy locations. And like, I just think of it from like a filmmaking point of view. Like, how do you get these people to go up there and do these things? And then, but it all works. And, you know, I can imagine, I try to imagine him trying to explain scenes to people. So you go to a senior citizen, okay, you're going to be sitting at a table and there's going to have a woman with spaghetti laying on top of her and you're going to have a funnel <laughs> on your head. And I just want you to freeze. You just have to freeze for a really long time. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> but people do it. And he gets all of these, you know, and, and I think he he is kind of like a Fellini in that he has this thing for faces. And he picks out these really striking, beautiful faces because that's what cinema is. And so it's something that he's able to, because I think because of his mind background as well, kind of make people's faces into these kind of instruments of emotion more than a normal film would. 
It's interesting that you mentioned Fellini because I believe when this movie was released to the world, it was kind of compared unfavorably to Fellini. And and I can see how those comparisons would have existed, though when you move forward and then see something like El Topo, that doesn't seem, you know, aside from the surreality of it, it doesn't seem Fellini-esque at all to me. I also like that you kind of hinted at the provocation that's on display here. This isn't just imagery that is meant to confront the audience. The sound is also part of that. There are sequences in this movie that have like the sound of almost like a, a mosquito that is getting louder and more irritating on the soundtrack. It, it's a movie that is meant to provoke strong feelings. And I guess that will come back to when we talk about that riot in just a few moments. But I want to give you an opportunity to talk about some of that imagery, Liam. Uh, there's a few things that stuck out to me. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what stuck out to you first. Um, it's interesting because I think the entire thing is filled with his sort of ingenious uh, visual uh, sort of know-how. Like, how do I, even if I don't know how to use this equipment very well, I know how to put things together that, like, speak something. They say something. They elicit a reaction. But, uh, but the moments I found the most sort of visceral were actually the ones you referenced earlier, Doug, of the... I guess you could call them flashbacks mm-hmm. um, to the sort of personal histories of both uh, uh, Lisa and, and Fando. And uh, those were more of a visceral nightmare logic for me than other parts of this. Parts of this feel uh, almost like a tableau, like I'm looking at it, like a dolly painting or something, you know? Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Parts of this feel more like a mime thing or like some sort of like vaudevillian gimmick you know what i mean um but those sequences reached into me and made me feel bad um and i don't know if that was some some of the camera work i don't know if it was what they were sort of dealing with but even though i think one is documenting a much more traumatic experience than the other both sort of the ways that they were communicating visually i was like this is some real shit right here right. Uh, and 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 uh and they were getting there in a way that felt less staged than some of his other stuff and i don't mean that as a criticism it just they felt a little bit different in some ways than some of the other things i've seen sure him do mm-hmm. and that was even more upsetting because then i felt more like well i don't know what's gonna happen here you know like mm-hmm. no one no one's gonna throw ribbons out of their chest or something like something yeah. you know more upsetting is gonna happen and and so th- those ones really got to me uh the other ones that get to me are always the ones where i feel like i do have some handle of what's going on so anything that felt vaguely like references to religion i always sort of like pick up on um because that's just like where my experience is you know so mm-hmm. um you know much like how uh, uh the the scene of the edible jesus's always makes me laugh and i love it uh <laughs> the in in holy mountain in this one you know this moment that i found you know very difficult obviously because uh it's a great tragedy for uh Lise to be murdered um when they're all taking communion of her, I was like, oh, okay, I immediately get the what's happening here. I'm not sure I get why, per se, but that's not really the point. But, like, there's something about that where you're like, okay, this is something I've seen before, and that familiarity can be just as alienating as the things you've – you know, the, the women eating the – the canned peaches while they oh play cards. God, it's so gross. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that. So that's alienating. But when he picks her up and starts walking with her on his back, I thought, 
this is in its familiarity is alienating and i love that i love those moments and sure. so um that really got to me in a way and it got me thinking about that relationship within that context you know i think we i think we forgot about the, we talked about the fun moment that fauna and lisa have together when they're when they've cross-dressed but we haven't talked about the fun painting their names on each that's, other that, that that's the that moment that i was going to bring yes. up for for one of my highlights of it and i think maybe the visual thing that people remember most about this movie uh just to paint the, the picture uh no pun intended Fondo and Liz are in a room together they're writing their names on the wall in this black paint this stark black paint on these white walls eventually this turns into a paint fight paint goes everywhere including coating the two of them I mean we we talk about uh, Jodorowsky's lack of experience with filmmaking but in terms of his visual eye and his ability to create striking imagery it obviously was there right from the beginning which we've seen both in the short films that we've talked about but certainly on display here this is not this does not feel like a stage play this feels like uh an experimental film in a lot of ways and who had to clean that up (laughs) (laughs) that building felt abandoned i don't think anyone had to clean anything up in there okay that gets us all right It, that is, I mean, it does feel like that moment because his movie, his that moment feels very like 1960s music video to me. Yes, which absolutely. None of his movies ever do, you know, and that in particular, but it's so lighthearted and fun for them. And she's walking and running around, she's not paralyzed in that scene. So mm. it's them, like, as young lovers having this goofy 60s moment that's really enjoyable, but also this complete juxtaposition from everything else you see in the film. Yes, there's a joy on display that that really it, it doesn't reflect what we see of their relationship later on. One hundred percent, Liam. I just wanted to refer just briefly. You mentioned the, the fact that some of the moments of them connecting and him carrying her that there's a rawness to that that you don't see. I think in a lot of Jodorowsky's later films. Again, I wonder if part of that is the fact that a that this might be because if this is an adaptation to some extent, uh, but b because this is a, a filmmaker still finding his feet, still finding his ability to tell a story. Uh, I lo- also love that as we are talking about this movie, we bring up just out of the blue these kind of surreal, strange moments like the women eating the peaches. And there's a lot of those that we haven't even touched on, uh, including right. the people laying in the mud that they encounter. Uh, this kind of, they're not really grotesque characters, just these nude or mostly nude people completely covered in mud, uh, I guess in some similar ways to the way that uh, Fondo and Lise themselves were covered in paint in that other uh, se- segment. The idea of this couple finding comfort and release and um, uh, in, in the experiences that they have, but still kind of always sniping at each other, always, and when I say sniping at each other, really just Fondo being terrible to her uh, again and again and again. Before we finish up talking about Fondo and Lise, I do want to get both of your take on this idea of it causing a riot, that people were responding so viscerally and so emotionally to watching this film that that they got violent, that they wanted to attack, maybe attack each other, maybe attack the, the place in which they were watching it, specifically that they want to attack the creator of it, Jodorowsky. We've heard of these sort of riots before, particularly when it comes to surreal films. I, I know Bunuel was involved in some, some riots in his time. Starting with you, Julia, why do you think people reacted so strongly to it? Okay, so can I just say that I have been in a movie movie theater where the movie made the crowd angry before? Um, yes, I went to go see the new uh, Suspiria, um, right. and there and there was it's at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. So there's hundreds of people, and as the movie's going on, the crowd I could you could feel the crowd started to get angry and starting to like mumble and like this like group thing, and I was like, oh man, something's gonna <laughs> happen. 
And there is this like when you have that many people and the film didn't make, I didn't understand what the problem was. I've seen the original Suspiria. I get it. And people were just losing their minds. So I, I've been in that situation. I mean, people didn't do anything, but to feel <laughs> that and know that that's a possibility, I see how it happens because if everybody's in that group, like feeling where they're all angry together and then it just takes one person to be like, riot. And then it just goes. I can see how a hundred percent showing like it. Could you imagine if you showed this? It's like who was at the Acapulco Film Festival, right? If you're looking at it, it's like, is it opening night where it's all the gala and it's all the fancy rich people who have never seen a film like this ever in their life? Because right. I don't think it's going to be the like hippie underground kids who get it, right? <laughs> so right. of course we're going to riot. I mean, it just depends on the kind of film. And we, are those kind of people going to riot? No, but are they going to leave on mass? Probably, and they're going to be angry about it as well because this is where their money is going to and blah blah blah. But this is what art is and if it doesn't invoke a strong reaction in you then it hasn't done its job so i can we've also we've also also heard those stories of these film festivals where the critics or the people attending these films at the time are specifically trying to send a message with their reaction people booing the screen people booing films not and and afterwards you know you go back and watch the movie it's like hey not only is this not a bad movie it's good but they were reacting to something that they took offense to maybe even the fact that the film existed maybe that was uh, part of the reason that the crowd of the Suspiria remake were reacting that way or some other element but so so please I didn't mean to cut you off Oh, no, no, no. That was a SAG screening where it was a bunch of people who didn't know what they were getting into is what that was. (laughs) So I think it's that. I think it's like, are you, do you get what you expect? And I think no one could, because nobody, you know, in 1968, nobody's expecting Jodorowsky. Nobody expects Jodorowsky, but here he is. (laughs) And he's come to like, give you a sucker punch to the face and be like, this is what art can be. It can, you know, it doesn't have to make sense. It can just be beautiful. It can just make you think and make you feel. And that's all it has to be. Liam, any thoughts on why uh, the crowds reacted so uh, violently to seeing this movie? I mean, my initial response is no, because I don't understand why anyone does something <laughs> like that. But uh, It's a funny thing for you to say, Liam, because I attended a recent screening of Trash on First, <laughs> where I thought people would have been ripping up the seats. <laughs> um, no, but even then, like I get why people are bummed out, but that level of outrage does seem kind of foreign to me. However... Um, you know, when you see uh, uh, the picture, like this wasn't a small theater, right? Like this was the gala. There's a picture the night of, of Yodorowsky and the whole cast. I mean, not the whole cast, but the main cast there all dressed up, looking fancy as VIPs. Like this was a big deal. Like, you know, I get it. Like if you're at a three o'clock in the afternoon screening at like a small theater in Soho, the idea that you would get mad enough to like threaten someone sounds crazy to you. But when you're at like a big old premiere and one of the most famous directors in Mexico is there and your film is being presented in this festival is like, I don't know, an important thing people should care about. I guess people could get upset. I mean, that director specifically threatened Yodorowsky, so that's a fun <laughs> story. But uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I it's something that like I kind of believe. I don't think it's just the myth making of of uh, of him. Um, but I also find it just alienating. Like I I couldn't imagine getting that mad at a movie. Probably, <laughs> probably. He well, who not knows? Sure. Maybe I just haven't seen the right movie yet. Well, I think we should also take into account that not only was the the content potentially shocking to that audience, that even the things that, even outside of the the the, the more 
surreal and difficult content in the movie that it also has a lot of things that would have been shocking simply because they weren't shown that often on screen, like like nudity. And there's quite a bit of nudity in this movie. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if that was maybe one of the things that contributed to it, to it being banned in Mexico as opposed to it being seen as like subversive or something along those lines. I just I always get very interested in the idea of those kind of reactions because I always... I always interpret it as the audience sees something in themselves that they don't want to see, mm-hmm. or and it it makes it that is what kind of elicits such a violent reaction to it that they're taking it personally. Um, and when I was watching this movie, I don't think even though I I did kind of apply what I was seeing to my own life in some ways, I don't think I felt it as an affront or something to be taken personally. But I do have to say I have seen movies in the past where I did feel like I was being criticized or I felt like it was trying to say something about me specifically. And that's the times when I think I have uh, that it has evoked a, such a strong reaction. Maybe that's something that the audience was feeling at this point, or maybe they were just looking to get angry about something. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there. I, it I sounds like time, it was. A- I'll time travel back there too, man. I, I'll go to that premiere screening, and then I'll come back and I'll come on the show and I'll tell you why Perfect. there was a riot. Perfect. Okay, deal. You have to supply the time travel machine, though. No, I, I'll get that over to you ASAP. I think right now the mail's a little slow, so it might take a little while. Uh, okay. Julia, when that crowd watching Suspiria were starting to rumble and you felt like that, was that an exciting feeling or was it a frightening feeling? I'm just getting, I just want to get a sense of just the idea that anything could arise out of that. And we certainly know over the past year when, when groups of people with a similar mindset uh, get to doing things, it can be pretty powerful stuff. Well, so as my best friend Terry and I, we do, uh, I have another podcast called Horror Movie Survival Guide and we do the show together. So we had gone to that. And so Tilda Swinton was going to be the guest afterwards. <laughs> so I think that if Tilda Swinton hadn't been there, people would have left. But because mm. they wanted to see her, they had to stay. So I think that that was this feeling of people was like, it kept going on and it was very slow and it was very artistic and there was a lot of blood and it was getting crazy. And it was just like, it, as the movie went on, it was ramping up and ramping up. And Terry and I were just looking at each other and just laughing because we're like, what is wrong with that? This movie's great. It's fine. What is their problem? But because it's something where if you aren't used to it, it's going to just it make you angry. What an angry crowd. It was... I. It, it didn't feel scary because I felt like it's the Egyptian, like it's probably going to be fine. But <laughs> I could see if you, someone lit that match, like it goes quick because to me, nothing is scarier than mass panic because people turn into animals in like two seconds. It's insane. So I was like, okay, we're fine though. Cause Tilda Swinton's coming out and then she'll chill everybody out. And she did. And it was great. And she was majestic. <laughs> um, so, I, but you know, so, but I've never been, I've never been in a, in a movie riot, but I definitely have been in, crowds that are strange that could go badly there had there were fist fights at the new beverly a couple of times where we had to like separate people and normally that was like you turn your cell phone off stuff right or but it was never like movie stuff <laughs> so <laughs> as far as i know <laughs> i've i've seen some uh attending the toronto international film festival some absolutely wretched movies where everyone in the audience agreed that what they were watching was total shit but and even they still get booed at film festivals that still happened yeah. Absolutely, it does. I, I, but I, I, maybe it was the fact that I was within a Canadian crowd. No one was booing. It was just that everyone after they walked out was like, "Why the fuck did I spend fifteen dollars on that piece of garbage?" But you <laughs> just the way... like people like, like screenings at Sundance to get booed and stuff. Like people, yeah, are, absolutely. And 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 again, like I said, you go back and watch those movies afterwards. You're like, wait, this is this is good. Why why were they so upset? It's uh, some like I said, sometimes people like to send a message as opposed to uh, what they are actually seeing 
on screen. I think we've come to the end of our discussion on Fando and Lease. On some of our other podcasts, we talk about afterwards, we ask each other, hey, is this a movie that you would recommend to anyone? That's not how I want to take uh, the perspective here. A, you're listening to a Jodorowsky podcast. Of course, we're recommending it to you because we're going to recommend everything for you to see, for you to give us feedback, for you to tell us what you think and your interpretation of it. That's what makes this sort of thing fun. Uh, But I just want to see if either of you have any final thoughts before we wrap up, uh, starting with you, Liam. Um, no, I mean, I think that for me, I, I will probably rewatch this, maybe not very soon, um, but at, at some point, because I think that on first watch, and you kind of mentioned this already, Doug, on first watch, I'm much more just experiencing the thing. You know, it's yeah, new to back me. Back up on your heels a little bit, right? Yeah, I don't know what it is. Um, I, I don't know what's happening. Um, and I think on rewatch, maybe I'll notice things that I didn't notice before, and, and that will be interesting for me. Um, but I will say that while there's a lot here going on, it's – I actually – I did find it less bombastic, probably because – there's not the same budget and you know, yeah. it's a different mm-hmm. kind of story. Um, so I think for folks who uh, are coming to uh, Yodorowsky as a director simply for the spectacle, which isn't to say that there isn't spectacle here, but I think for some, they're only on a spectacle high. Uh, you know, you, you might not find this as visceral as some of his other films, but I, I don't know if in some ways that made this also just, uh, a little more interesting because I was thinking in a different way uh, than I would um, for some of his other films. Julia, any final thoughts? I th- I'd say that this is a nice place to be because I feel, as I said, Jordowski is a hard uh, filmmaker to recommend because you have to mm-hmm. suss yeah. out the person's kind of level of film knowledge. I don't think if someone's just getting into film, he's an easy one to digest just because it's a lot to, to it's a very overwhelming. So I think that for film lovers like us, we're like, yeah, into it, Holy Mountain. But then if you take someone who's only ever seen romantic comedies or only ever seen, you know, normal films, this is going to seem insane, which is the best thing about it. So I think, I think going chronological is the best way to go. Like if you watch the movies as we watched in order, uh, La Cravat and Teatro Sin Fin, and then this, you get this nice easing in effect because I think that that would be a good way to do it. And then you start to get, and then El Topo is going to get crazy and Holy Mountain is going to get crazier. And like, you'll get this kind of, you know, Holy Mountain is such a slap in the face. If you're really wanting to like dive in and go whole hog, that's the way to do it. But if you want to like baby step your way in, I'd say that this is nice. And I always love to see the progression of filmmakers and artists. And then you can really see that with this. And that makes me happy to say like everybody, nobody comes out and is like, um, no, I can't say that. I was going to say nobody comes out and is like super genius out of the gate, but he totally does. So I can't <laughs> say that at all. He is super genius out the gate. I'll shut my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're a listener and are, are curious about the films that we talk, uh, we talked about today or will be talking about in the future, I'd recommend uh, a subscription to the Mubi service, M-U-B-I dot com. Uh, they're not a sponsor or anything like that, but they currently have a number of Jodorowsky's film in, films, including Fondo and Liz, El Topo, The Holy Mountain. Uh, and, and they just recently have added his more recent films, The Dance of Reality, Endless Poetry, as well as his documentary, Psychomagic, A Healing Art, uh, a good place to go for a low price to get a lot of his films uh, all in one spot. So uh, you can check that out. As Liam suggested, there are box sets of his work as well. Uh, We'll leave some links to that in the show notes today. I want to thank everyone who decided to join us on this very first episode of Jodowowski. Uh, (laughs) We are, as suggested, we are going to go chronologically uh, through the work 
of Alejandro Jodorowsky in our uh, upcoming episodes. If there is a favorite film of yours, we are going to be covering it. If it's a film, if it's something outside of those films, we're likely to be discussing it as well. This is going to be a very exciting journey, and I'm glad that you are here to join us on it. And when I say that, I don't just mean the listeners. I also mean my two co-hosts here today. Julia Marchesi, where can people find you and your work online? I'm at Julia C. Marchesi on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I have a horror movie survival guide. It is a podcast about surviving horror movies. If you're into that, you can listen to me enthusiastically tell you how to survive a horror film. Uh, I also am, yeah, find me, talk to me. I'm very, DM me, you know, I'm there. Jodorowsky, horror, whatever. Movies, I'm there. Uh, Julia's enthusiasm is why this podcast exists Uh, so I'm glad that she lit a fire under our ass and got us uh, to put this together because I'm so excited not only to uh, to see these movies but to talk about them with the two of you Liam O'Donnell you are a person that I talk to so often I'm really sick of it Uh, so it's it's really something uh, special that I've I've reignited my passion for Mm. discussing movies with you Uh, where can people Mm. find you and your work online well, of course, they can find not just this podcast, but a whole family of podcasts over at Cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, uh, as well as Cinepunks on all manner of social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just make sure you know how to spell it, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Uh, but as far as me personally, uh, go ahead and find me on Twitter, at Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. Uh, you know, it, I'm mostly annoying, but you might end up uh, liking some of it. Cinema Smorgasbord is a uh, podcast umbrella that has a lot of themed podcasts underneath it, including podcasts devoted to actors as diverse as uh, Jackie Chan, as the Filipino Peter Lorre Vic Diaz, as um, uh, Carol Kane, a lot of different filmmakers and uh, and actors and actresses that are covered on that. If you want to check those out, go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com or follow us on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. Also on Facebook, if you do a search for Cinema Smorgasbord. If you would like, you can also follow me on social media on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L. E-Y. As we end here today on our first episode, we'd love for you to subscribe. We'd love for you to recommend to your friends. If you are a Jodorowsky fan, please leave us feedback on that website, cinemasmorgasbord.com, and we'll hopefully uh, cover that on the next show. But for now, boy, after all that conversation, I think it's time for us to take a little break. When we return on our next episode, yeah, we're, uh, we're entering Midnight Movie Madness with El Topo. Join us very soon for the next Jodorowsky. Night.